Hello, everyone. This is Reb Brad. You're listening to the Soccer Chaplains United podcast from the Touchline. Again, for the next few weeks, my best mate Fraser K is lending his talents to us as he shares his writing skill and his narrative voice, and we get the chance to see King David abuse his power and his position. David falls from grace and from his kingly duty, and he needs the grace of God in his life to help him recover. Well, for those of you that don't know, Fraser and I go back a long time. We met in 2001 in our seminary days. Fraser hails from Aberdeen, Scotland, and we've shared life together through many different things. Fraser's written several books and audiobooks. Last year, Fraser shared with us his biblical monologue, The King's Table, which details the story of King Saul's uh, grandson, Mephibosheth, and the way that King David treated him. You can find Fraser's stuff on Amazon by looking up his pen name, Fraser K. K is spelled K-A-Y, and Fraser is with an S. Today, we hear part two of The Abuse of Power and the Grace of God a biblical monologue featuring David, king of Israel, two years after murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife. We'll all come on afterward to offer a few questions for reflection and a prayer. So stay tuned. He's found the space, and he's found the back of the net. Just a little off foot, thinking he's going to go far post. Not strong enough with his right hand. Whips that one in. Far post, almost made him in, and they have. He has the hat trick. The second in his career, the third of the night, the hat-trick hero. Talked about you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pressure. To the corner, goes towards the near post, and you're on the angle, and what a goal! What a goal! The Abuse of Power and the Grace of God A biblical monologue featuring David, King of Israel, two years after murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife. Written and narrated by Fraser Kay. Part 2. Sending and Taking Once more spring came around, the time when kings like me usually go out to war. But I stayed put, just as I'd done the first time against the Ammonites. I sent Joab and the entire army out again. They advanced into the heart of Ammon, ravaged it, and surrounded the capital where the king and his leading men were holed up. Last stand. Had I been fighting, leading as I should have, I would never have found myself with so much time in my hands. While the men were fighting in another country, sleeping out in the fields in their tents, I was at home, taking it easy. One evening, I got off my bed and went for a walk on the palace rooftop. It's just upstairs from the royal suite and looks out high across the city. It was then that I saw her, bathing, naked. I could see right into her room from the rooftop. Was I snooping? No. Had she been careless? No. No one in their right mind would expect a palace official to be out late in the evening, on the roof, and peering into someone else's house. She was just going about her business. I lingered. I took in her wet body and long black hair. I was transfixed, struck by a slow-burning arrow. 
I wanted her. At that point, I should have walked. But I stayed, staring, absorbing it all, her every movement, images being seared into my mind. A small fire built up inside me until it grew into a raging inferno. The fact that she didn't know I could see her made it even more of a thrill. I had to find out who she was. Since I'm the king, I sent someone to find out. A trusted official would be discreet. The report came back. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The messenger's disbelieving eyes saw right through me. Eliam. I'd heard that name before. Yes, one of my top fighters. A leader among men. I knew his father, Ahithophel. He was one of my most trusted advisers. Listening to what he has to say about spiritual concerns and matters of state was like listening to God. He's that good. And I knew Uriah. The name means, my light is the Lord. He was another of my most trusted fighters, a brave and loyal man who would have laid down his life for me. All very good reasons to stop right where I was and pour cold water over that burning desire. But I didn't. I fanned it into flame, spun the images around in my mind, imagined being with her, having her. My desire had pulled me this far along and I didn't want it to stop. I became like a powerful stallion, eager, stamping, snorting, ears back, wishing to burst out of its holding stall, wrench the gateposts from its base, charge along towards its objective. I was a drunk man, intoxicated with desire, careless, lacking inhibition. I wanted her, wanted to feel that body next to mine, to have her for myself, to let that fire take over, to charge, to drink deeply. So, ignoring the messenger's comment that clarified who she was, I sent some messengers to bring her over the next day. The following afternoon, she was brought to my private suite of rooms via a back entrance to the palace. I made sure no one would be around. I'd washed and put on some clean clothes and applied some rich spices, eagerly awaiting her arrival. She was understandably nervous and overawed meeting me personally and seeing my surroundings. I asked how she was coping with Uriah being away. One question and answer moved smoothly onto another. She looked and smelled gorgeous. As I showed her the view out of one of the windows, I moved up right behind her. She didn't resist. I pulled her close, before leading her into the bedroom and shutting the door behind me. So I held that body, had my fill, of another man's wife, another man's daughter, and another man's granddaughter. The raging fire was deeply satisfied, my thirst quenched, 
I had sent for her, and I had taken her. Afterwards, I wondered how I could see her again, but it was out of the question. I just couldn't risk it, but she never left my mind. My lazy existence continued. I went from couch to meeting and back to couch again. Reports on domestic and international matters interspersed with short naps whenever I wanted. Daily meals with the family, seeing my wives and playing with the younger children all continued as if nothing had occurred. I had separated the entire liaison with Bathsheba from normal life. My heart had become a rock. What I failed to realise at the time was that the stench my actions gave off to heaven's nostrils was worse than the odious error of the Ammonites' treatment of my delegation. But things were to get more complicated. A few months later, one of the court messengers handed me a sealed note. It was not your typical looking royal correspondence. I opened it nonchalantly. On it was written one sentence. I'm pregnant. It was signed by Bathsheba. The stakes were now as high as the sky. The law demanded my death and Bathsheba's for our adultery. I blocked it out. Having Bathsheba exterminated was not something I wished to arrange. Besides, it would be difficult. And anyway, she was carrying a child. My child. Our child. I decided to cover my tracks. It's what you do when you're in too deep. Naturally, you cover up your errors, your sins. But it was another callous move. Controlling was more attractive than confessing. Manipulation better than admission. I didn't want to lose everything I had, and certainly not my life. Like I said, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was a good man, one of the best, a reliable soldier and officer. It's unfortunate he was away fighting, because he couldn't have therefore got Bathsheba pregnant. I had to get him back to his house, and quickly, before Bathsheba began to show. Everyone including him, would then assume the child was his. Bathsheba was hardly likely to tell anyone. She was guilty as well. But how could I get him to leave the battlefield and go back to his house? I concocted a plan. I would send messengers to Joab, the army commander, ordering him to send me Uriah. He could bring me the latest news from the war against Ammon. When he arrived, I would ask him how the war was going, how the men were. You know, lay it on thick, build up some rapport, make it look like I wanted a leader's view on what was going on. That way, there's every chance he would go home after he and I had spoken, pouring doubt on any suggestions or rumours later that I had anything to do with Bathsheba's pregnancy. It worked. At least the first part of my evil scheme. He arrived three days later. Our meeting was cordial enough, and I don't believe he suspected a thing. 
I told him to go home and wash his feet. That way, he'd be inclined to stay overnight with Bathsheba. And I had a parcel of food from the palace kitchen sent after him, something to move things along nicely. What sort of man would not relish the chance to go back to his wife, rest for the day, and enjoy her company and everything else besides? But I heard that he didn't go home that night. He slept with the rest of my servants at their quarters at the palace entrance. The waters became murkier. Haven't you just come from a military campaign, I declared. Why didn't you go home? He retorted, The Ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Ouch. His words were like a slap in the face, a punch in the stomach. Here I was, lounging about back at the palace. I lived in complete safety. I could eat the best of food whenever I wanted, and make love to a different woman every night. I had several wives and many concubines. But, eager to execute my plan, I instructed him. Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. I simply had to get him back to his house. Not much chance of that when he's sober. So I invited him to dine personally with me, plied him with fine food and some of our strongest and best wines. One large cup of that stuff and you're away. It was easy after that. I got him completely drunk. As he stumbled out of the palace dining room, I thought to myself, Perfect. He's bound to end up back safe and warm at his house, tucked up with Bathsheba until the morning. That would give both of us a way out. But the next morning, one of the messengers told me he'd ended up with the servants again, crashed out on some mat in the palace guardroom. He had not gone home. I was getting desperate. No sweet reunion for him. And more importantly, no cover for me. It pains me now to say it. Uriah was supremely loyal, even when drunk. And here I was, sober and scheming. Somewhat ironic, don't you think? The danger now was that word would get out, that Bathsheba had got pregnant while her husband was away. There was a distinct possibility that a trail might lead back to the palace, so I had to cut off any chance of that. What little light I had left in my eyes was about to be extinguished. So, having taken Bathsheba, I decided to take Uriah out of action, permanently. It was the only way. With Uriah dead, I could take Bathsheba home as my wife soon after. She would be with me, and the child would also be safe. The birth would soon be lost in the midst of everything else, the war, national affairs, and general palace life. People would assume Uriah had been home at some point when he had come back earlier before his death, 
and that I had taken a grieving widow home as an additional wife. The speed of arrangements might raise an eyebrow here and there, but it would be lawful. It's not as if I hadn't taken a wife before, whose husband had just died. Some of my inner court might put two and two together, but I could deal with them. I wrote to Joab, the commander, placed my royal seal over the letter, and sent it with Uriah back to the main battle just shy of Ammon's capital, Rabah. In his hands were his own death warrant. The message instructed the army commander Joab to place Uriah at one of the points where the city was best defended. We were losing men every other day there. Uriah would join the brave and fallen, and my problem would be solved. Joab was a hard man, and not averse to killing if the need arose. It wasn't long before I got a reply from Joab. A messenger from the front arrived. As I'd expected, Joab asks no questions. He even couched it in such terms as to cloud over the whole affair. The nervous messenger ended his report by saying that Uriah, one of my top men, had been killed in battle. Encourage Joab by telling him to keep pushing forward and capture the city, I responded. The sword devours one as well as another. Even now I shudder. In my past, I treated sheep better, even goats. As they do with families of men killed in battle, a messenger was dispatched to the home of the dead soldier. But so that I could make it look as smooth as possible, I waited for thirty days, the usual time for mourning, before taking Bathsheba back to the palace as my wife. The way was now clear. I could put the whole thing to rest. She seemed to become larger by the week, and soon started to show. We wondered whether it was a boy or a girl. The day finally arrived. A boy. Wonderful news. Meanwhile, the siege of Rabah continued. I got daily updates, but my mind was on the boy and Bathsheba. I assumed I had gotten away with it, and life went on. Then one day, a visitor showed up at the palace. A man called Nathan. Thanks, Razor. We get to find out who Nathan is next week. Well, friends, it's a pretty heavy story today, but one that's important for us to hear and important for us to really take in. I actually encourage you maybe to even go back and listen to the podcast again. You know, sometimes we read stories in the Bible and we dismiss them. They, the story seems so far away. The people feel like they're from so long ago or, or we rush through them because maybe we've read or we've heard the story before and we minimize it. We build people into heroes. I mean, David, after all, is our favorite giant killer. And we ignore the stories of shame or sin or the stories where our heroes are human or lesser. I'm going to ask a few tough questions for us to reflect and meditate on today. And, And these questions go no matter what position or place you're in. You know, right now in the pastoral world, in the church world, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. 
in the football world, there's always a ton of stuff going on with people who are in positions of power and influence. So let me ask the first question. What position of power and influence are you in? What power and influence do you have today related into the game or your vocation or your, your work, your home life? Have you ever abused that power or that position? Have you ever exploited someone? How far did you go? Now, let's be honest. The world of football, with all its glitz, glam, money, its influence, its, its global transcendence, it's a hotbed for the abuse of power, for sex, for seduction, and for a lot of other things. You know, footballers make out targets and, and bets at the post-match club or bar. Groupies wait for footballers in hotel lobbies. Mobile numbers are exchanged. Texts are exchanged. Or sexts are exchanged. Secret and not-so-secret rendezvous are made. And, and scintillating tabloid materials are car- covered over by club press officers. Physios hand out contraceptives or they make medical arrangements. Even managers and staff can lead a double life whilst on the road. An extra night or two in a different city, a, a long road trip, being away from the typical domestic duties, no one will see, no one will know. Remember, friends, from our story that David doesn't just suddenly wake up one night and want to have a go with a woman that isn't his own, with a wife that isn't his own. He doesn't just suddenly snap up and think, I want the wife of one of my bravest soldiers and best friends. No, no, it's a slow burn. It's what I talked about last week, the ambush of apathy. It's David bored. He has too much. He has too much that's been given to him by God. He has too much time on his hands. Too much of not being where he's supposed to be and doing his job as king. Too much of not being accountable. You know, we've all heard the phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And for David, he now embodies this. One thing leads to another. His staycation as king leaves him wandering the palace rooftops at night. His apathy has his eye wandering and eyeing another man's wife. His lack of discipline has him watching intently and plotting ways to satiate his sexual perversion and desire. And then, having had her, he thinks he can get away with it. He thinks no one saw, no one knows, or maybe just a few select people that I can control. I can hush up. I really think it shows how apathetic David has become about his own faith and relationship in God. And then he tries to cover it up. And when he can't, it leads to murder. Friends, I've seen it all. I've seen enough of it in football. A lot of unfaithfulness, a lot of cheating, a lot of divorce. Athletes cheat on their spouses. Spouses cheat with teammates or or they have retaliatory sex. Studies say that divorce amongst elite pro athletes ranges anywhere from 60 to 80%. And that was from studies seven years ago. I imagine it's worse. Scottish footballer John Rankin has been quoted as saying that it was the staggering divorce statistic for the Scottish Premier League that drove a daily uh, sort of dose of reality into him. He realized that 75% of ex-footballers in his league were divorced by age 50. And he didn't want that. And he, is, he said publicly, like, I'm, I'm trying to put my family first. 
you know, friends, for me, I, I use something, uh, a piece of scripture that is helpful for me in these times. The book of Numbers, chapter 32, 23, there's this powerful, these powerful words of scripture that I, I carry with me when I'm faced with temptations of lust and sin, when my eye is tempted to wander, when my, when my heart is tempted to give faith and loyalty to another, even, even sort of this false image or this false idea. And I often recite these words of Moses. He, he says this in Numbers 32, 23, he says, be sure your sin will find you out. And the truth is, is that sin, no matter how clever or crafty we are in believing that we're hiding something or that we're getting away with something, it eventually finds us out. It eventually becomes revealed and the destructive path of sin plays out. Friends, today I want to close with a prayer, a blessing for us in the midst of temptation. And no matter what place you find yourself in, whether you're a footballer who's on the road for for much of the year, or you're an executive or a manager or a staff member, and you find yourself, you're in a a place of being committed or in relationship or faithfulness, and you you find yourself wandering or or you find apathy and complacency sort of setting in, we all face temptation. And we need help to get through it. And we find ourselves in it regardless sometimes. So I just want to pray this this prayer and this blessing for you and for me. Lord, may my eyes be careful in what they see. May my feet be careful in where they go. May my hands be careful in what they do. And may my heart be careful in what and who it follows. In the idle times of life, when I'm prone to wander, prone to stray, be ever with me to be my guide, my help, to keep my feet on the right way. In the moments when my eyes lose the light of day, in the times when I stumble and even fall, bring a swift correction and give me strength and resolve. Amen. Well, this is Reb Brad and the voice talents of Fraser K. coming to you from the Touchline.